This is an Area Code podcast. Hey everybody and welcome to Season 3 of Video Game Feelings. Today on the show, Josh Sawyer, the design director at Obsidian. Not only is he responsible for games like Fallout New Vegas and Pillars of Eternity, he also created a game called Pentiment. This is sort of like a little bit of um, off-the-cuff banter at the beginning because I, I was thinking about what, what can we just talk about randomly at the front, and it's going to be a little deeper than normal because I want to talk to you about something that doesn't fit in the scope of the interview I want to have with you um, about Pentiment, which is like the treatment of spirituality and religion in that game is so different than what I've seen in other games. And even frankly, in the fallout series, you know, I feel like the fallout series is like, so um, I remember playing fallout three and they're fanatics, right? Like they're religious fanatics that are cultish and bad. What's behind that treatment of religion and Pentiment? And this may like become a theme in the interview, but I also just like, am curious, like what, what caused you to want to tackle that specific sort of hot topic so head on and in that way? Yeah, I actually wrote once previously with religion as a major theme, which was in the DLC for Fallout New Vegas, Honest Hearts, where mm-hmm. um, there was a, mis- a Mormon missionary group basically dealing with um, people. And I think part of it is I studied I studied history in college, and I think that you would have to be very cynical to study the history of Europe and religion in it and come to the conclusion that everyone is either a fanatic or cynical. And I'm, I believe that there are no gods. That's how I've been for my entire life. But I think the thing is faith informs, like in most circumstances, if it's a really true faith, it's your frame through which you view the entire world and all of reality. So if it's a really sincere belief, then it's just kind of foundational to your life and how you interact with the world. And certainly some people are cynical and some people are honored to opportunists and some people are fanatics. But I think most people who have faith, uh, especially if they're raised in a society of faith, that's the foundation of how they view the world. And so it's not that they take it for granted. I don't want to say that it's unexamined, but that's the basis for how they interact with things. And it's really the foundation of a lot of European society. So I think if you shortchange the role of religion and the role of the church in a historical story in 16th century Europe, I don't think you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong if you don't get that right. So I felt it was pretty important to show a wide variety of beliefs from orthodox to extremely heretical um, and varying levels of sincerity and faithfulness and observation. Yeah, I wanted to mention that because I had a previous life where I was in seminary and like was going to become a minister before I started to go into marketing and podcasting. And this resonated with me so much in terms of exactly kind of how you articulated like taking faith for granted in sort of a positive sense, right? Like I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm not not spiritual or religious anymore. It's just something I'm not so self-conscious about (laughs) as much, right? It just sort of governs my life. And I think this is the first video game I've played where the characters act in that way. They just take for granted God exists and it affects their life in the following way, which can be a double-edged sword, which is explored pretty interestingly in this (laughs) game, I think. Thank you. 
Pentiment was one of my absolute favorite games last year, not just because of its treatment of religion and spirituality, but because of the way it treats the high wire act of creation. In Pentiment, we see that creating can cause anxiety and the ways it can distract us from anxiety. In the story of Andreas, we see how making a creative work for someone else is both distinct from and enmeshed in the ways we create for ourselves. It's not the message of this game that compels me as much as the complexities and the tensions and the questions that are explored. In Pentiment, there's an undercurrent of danger. In the town of Tassing, creative pursuits have a pretty distinct purpose, and those purposes are often at cross-purposes with some of Andreas's neighbors. And those tensions are heightened even more in the game's bracing final act. But it was exactly the game's approach to these tensions that made me want to reach out to Josh. There's a stark contrast between Andreas's deep creative insecurity and the sort of creative confidence that Josh Sawyer models in the creation of Pentiment. Pentiment really felt like a genuine creative risk to me. It's a game about religion set in a locale and a time that not many are familiar with. It's a video game full of reading, philosophy, and design choices that seem actively conceived to alienate a specific kind of audience. I struggle with making art that is as creatively pure as this. My brain doesn't really have a category for making art in a vacuum. Everything I make tends to be for an audience, and the audience in my head isn't particularly kind. They're skeptical, fickle, and easily distracted. And as a result, when I'm being creative, I struggle deeply to turn off those voices in my head. All I can hear is that what I'm making is probably too sad, too idiosyncratic, too navel-gazy, or just too boring. Pentiment is the kind of creatively pure artistic risk that would have been nearly unbearable for someone like me to fully carry out. Thankfully, that massive risk paid off. And as someone who relates more to Andreas than Josh in my creative pursuits, I, I went to him hoping for an answer to a question I find myself asking all the time. How can I create something with confidence in my own vision? And to what extent do I really need to concern myself with a particular creative project's financial success? Well, here's my conversation with Josh Sawyer. Hope you enjoy it. In full disclosure, if you haven't played the game, though we don't really talk about the surprising final act, there are some spoilers in this episode. What did you hope that you would make people feel when they played this game? How did you hope that people would feel playing this game? I think one of the main things that I wanted to communicate was I wanted people to really feel and believe that human beings have basically more or less always been the same. <laughs> and like mm. the material reality that we live in is different and their society is different, but we still kind of think in the same way and feel in the same way and have the same range, more or less, of intelligence, even if our education is not the same, but that people are really just people in any era. And um, I think there's a tendency to look into, 
especially medieval history. I mean, this is early modern, but I don't think most people distinguish. And we look into this time period and we think, God, like these people must have been so stupid or they didn't know how to do anything or they had no common sense. Um, how could they possibly believe the things that they believed? And in many cases, there are really obvious answers. And also, we're not that smart. <laughs> so like, there's plenty <laughs> of people that believe ridiculous things right now, despite the fact that we have this incredible wealth of information at our fingertips. So, yeah, I really wanted to show people um, this community and how they worked and had friendships and loves and rivalries and how things like, for example, same-sex relationships existed, but were... <laughs> largely not really like people didn't talk about. There's a lot of stuff that people just, I mean, it's not that like I'm 47. And so I grew up in an era where people would sort of not talk about knowing that people were gay. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. that was just how people lived. Like they knew like, yep, they're gay and we're never going to talk about this. We might talk around it and acknowledge it, but we definitely are not going to actually bring it up. And that's how it was for a really long time. And yes, there were punishments for it in this period, but it wasn't actually enforced as much as you might think. And especially everyone used to tell the story, like in the 80s, of the one gay uncle. And the thing is, like, everybody probably knows somebody who is mm -hmm. in a same-sex relationship of some sort. And in this time period, it would, of course, have to be illicit, and the form that it would take would not be conventional. But again, like, you live really close to each other, and it's very hard to be quiet and secret. And so people are aware, but they just look the other way. And that's not great, but the thing is, again, I think we look at the past and think, well, homosexuality was actually punishable, and it could be punished by up to execution, like really horrible execution. Yeah. And that did happen. And I don't want to minimize that, but like that wasn't usual. Most people, they didn't want their neighbors to get, <laughs> they didn't want their neighbors to get killed or their yeah. uncle to get killed. And so they just kind of were like, okay, like that's happening, but we're just not going to address it. And also to, to show how they dealt with people of color who were in Europe at this time in small numbers. And it was certainly very unusual, but they didn't have the centuries of bias that we have now. And so it was more shocking and wonderful than it was. It just, it didn't have the same impact at all that it does right now. Um, yeah. So yeah, just trying to convey these things and show this is what I believe a fairly accurate representation of life and relationships are in this period and to get people to empathize with people from the past. It's fascinating because like the way you're framing it is like almost an intellectual exercise. But as I'm thinking about how it plays out emotionally for the player, I think that feeling is to feel validated or less alone, right? Like it's the feeling that, oh, there are not only people in this moment that I relate to, but there are people throughout history that I'm relating to in that way. And there's something too, uh, you know, the, the way you talked about that, there's something about the extreme example that helps us feel better and it's not quite the same as like at least it's not that bad there's something a little more heartening i think than that and for me it, it was those the sort of dual tensions of andreas experiencing his relationship with patronage you know his relationship with doing work for patrons and then also his relationship between his creative work and his family and how there was a tension between those two things. I was really heartened by those extreme examples of those two tensions <laughs> for whatever reason, like it hit home for me. Is that something you were conscious of? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a little bit of a um, anachronistic sense of artistry 
mm-hmm. um, art or high art or fine art wasn't really conceived of as such mm-hmm. in this time period. That's a much more contemporary sort of way to view as art. Art was a craft and it was which isn't to say people weren't passionate about it, but it didn't have that kind of there's almost like a mystique, I would say, today about art. And there's this idea of art versus craft. Yeah. Um, but still, this is the thing that he's doing. And I think like anyone, like I wanted to be an illustrator for a long time. My dad is a bronze sculptor. I lived uh, with a partner who is an artist for 12 years. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff you do just to pay the bills. And there's a lot of stuff you do because of the reason you got into it, because you're passionate about it and you enjoy doing it. And video games as well. Like there's games I've done where I'm like, well, let's get this over with. Like, I'm not really <laughs> feeling it, but we got to get it done. Or there yeah. are like restrictions or requirements in it that are frustrating and you just got to get through it. And then there are other times where you get to do things where it's it really feels liberating and um, exciting and thrilling uh, just because of the circumstances or the subject matter or whatever. And so, um, again, I feel like even if it is a bit of a more contemporary take to view art in that way, I wanted people to really sympathize with that. And there were a lot of people, especially game developers, who said that Act 2 Andreas when he's super disillusioned, they were like, Ooh, yeah, like I'm very (laughs) successful. I'm very established, but I really am not very happy. And that's something that a lot of people, uh, also academics. I saw a lot of academics say like, yeah, this is me too. So the idea of art and high art, it feels like is tied to this idea of like how much it is yours. How much ownership do you have over the idea versus someone else has assigned it to you and is looking over your shoulder? And it struck me, and this is not, I mean, this is obvious, like Pentiment is for you like that. It, it, it feels to me like Pentiment is a personal project that is tied to you. And then if you look at what you've done in the past, you're really stewarding and shepherding other people's ideas. I, I guess the question is, is that true? Like how much of Pentiment is you versus um, those other projects? It, obviously a certain degree, but like how much of it exactly is you? Yeah, I would say Pentiment by far more than any other project I've worked on is mm-hmm. um, my tastes and my passion and preferences without really any, I can say like really without any regard for what other people outside the team wanted. Um, I think when you work with other people, you do have an informal contract that like they're part of the creative process. And so Mm -hmm. they do have to be on board with the high level idea of what I'm doing. But when it comes down to the specifics of execution, you have to be willing to make compromises there, but that's a good and healthy way to work, I think. But there weren't external constraints. There weren't like no one was telling me, make a game like this, make it this long, make it with this art style. All of that stuff was generated from me or the people on the team together. Um, So in that sense, very liberating. I didn't have to force in backer NPCs like I would on Pillars of Eternity or Deadfire. I didn't have to deal with a pre-existing intellectual property like Dungeons and Dragons or Fallout, unless you consider Europe to be an intellectual property. Um, so, <laughs> Which I do. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, more by far more than any other game, this is a game that represents my preferences and tastes. Not universally. It isn't to say mm-hmm. I only ever want to make 16th century narrative adventure games in Bavaria, but my choices to do all of these things were driven by me in, yeah. in cooperation with my teammates. So if it's me, I'm projecting onto you a little bit, but if it's me um, and I'm going to make some assumptions in this projection, you're pitching this idea, it gets greenlit at that moment when you realize you're holding the bag and are responsible for this project, 
the to me the stakes feel higher, like significantly higher, and um, that's a terrifying moment. Is that how you felt? Nope. No. <laughs> no. You are a more confident man than me. Then, yeah. Well, it's it's part of it is you know like I don't think I could have really made this game at any other point in my career. Like I kind mm-hmm. of needed a lot of different games under my belt and I needed to have some pretty big highs and some big disappointments to kind of get to the stage where I felt in doing this. The other thing too, is I'm not going to get into dollars and cents, but it's not an expensive game. It was 13 people for uh, most of production. And because of that, I'm like, who cares? <laughs> like, like maybe, and I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. Like it's such a small game that even if it completely face planted, I couldn't really see Microsoft being that upset about it. Not like I was trying to do that, of course, <laughs> yeah. but it's a very different sense of response. Like I felt very responsible on pillars and dead fire, even though those are also not huge games, but they're more expensive games. And the company was kind of relying on those games to do well financially. And so I felt a lot Mm. more pressure on those games. And we were also beholden to a lot of backers. And that put a lot of pressure on me as well. Everyone, but like me especially. And then, you know, like very big projects where there's tens of millions of dollars, up to $100 million being invested, that would put a lot of pressure on me. But if you say like, here's, make a game under Xbox, the smallest, you're the smallest team making a game (laughs) for Mm -hmm. Xbox studios Mm -hmm. and everyone knows and agrees and is saying it's a, it's an art project. It's a passion project. Go for Uh it. That didn't like, it actually didn't put pressure on me. Like it was a healthy pressure. Like I wanted to do a good job, but I actually felt less pressure on this game than any game I've worked on in the past decade easily. This is my perspective. And maybe you know this and are aware of this, but that feels so unique, not just in the games world, but just in general, to have the backing, the financial backing of a like a major company and to also have that full acknowledgement of this is a, a personal artistic project, right? Um, yeah. Just full stop. It feels so unique and you feel it because like, you know, I played this in the midst of a, it would, I feel like last year was such a year for like really great indie games. And this game feels bigger than a lot of those indie games to me. So when you talk about it as small, after I come, I, you know, I'm playing cult of the lamb and citizen sleeper. Those are relatively like small games, right? Those are pretty small games. And this one feels almost triple A compared to those in certain ways, um, production wise, like in terms of production quality, how much is put into the art and just various polished things. All of that stuff is like, you can tell that there is money behind this game. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to be like, oh, shucks, we're just a little group of guys like because uh-huh. the thing is yeah. actual indie because some people will occasionally refer to this game as an indie game no it's not right it's a game yeah, right. made under one of the biggest game publishers in the world um <laughs> yeah. and i'm very lucky for that but it's a relatively small project within the studio but even so like yeah and the thing is there were certain things that honestly we splur our eye splurged on um because i knew that the overall budget was relatively low like would an indie developer pay a typographic studio to develop uh, six right. custom fonts for the uh-huh. game? Probably not. 
Like, that's a crazy amount of, I mean, it was, that was expensive. And so there were certain things where I'm like, no, we're going to really nail this. And I know that that's expensive, but within the grand scheme of the studio and, and Microsoft, it wasn't really that bad. So there's a huge amount of privilege that I have in making this. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't like it when people suggest it's indie or that we're kind of plucky. We're not plucky. (laughs) We're part of a huge, a big studio in a huge publisher. Um, So for me, it was shortly after Microsoft acquired us. I was like, I bet I have one chance on good faith (laughs) (laughs) to make a relatively small passion project. And I'm going to do it right now, right after the acquisition. And I'm probably never going to be able to do it again, but I'll do it now after, after 20 years in the industry, I think I can do it. So. Yeah. That tension is what I'm so interested in, but between like the small indie game, which is obviously not. And the big AAA game, which is obviously not that. And then those tensions of how it got made. Right. I'm curious. I mean, what you're talking about feels like patronage in a way. It feels (laughs) like they are like Microsoft is basically the patron for, I don't know, like you're a good artist. Go do what you do. Right. I'm curious, like that at least mirrors Andreas and his journey. I'm curious how much of his creative tensions are specifically flowing out of your experience. I would say experiences on on previous projects, not Pentiment, because I will say Pentiment's development was like everything has moments of tension and sort of like anguish. But like one of the easiest, maybe the easiest game to develop in terms of just relatively low stress, high cooperation, not a lot of drama, (laughs) not a lot of wasted work. But previous games like, you know, Deadfire, I've said this before in postmortems, like the financial performance initially, eventually Deadfire has made a fair amount of money now. But when it Mm -hmm. launched, it lost a bunch of money, like it really flopped and it was extremely disappointing. And Mm -hmm. the process of making two uh, crowdfunded games back to back with a lot of backer rewards and needing to incorporate all of the backer content and... While (laughs) I do think it's very important to listen to player feedback um, when the community is like that passionate and that big and you're really stressed because we were under a lot of time pressure to get the game done. um, Uh It was just it was it was really disappointing to kind of not quite death march, but like we really struggled toward the end Mm. of Deadfire to get everything done and then have it come out and financially flop was extremely disappointing because it felt like. I thought we had made something really good, even though it was compromised in a number of ways. But then to have it also underperform was like, cool, why even direct games? Uh, Like, I really was just like, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't at least not for a while. And I didn't know what kind of game I wanted to make. And so, yeah, I had to take a while. I had this idea of Pentiment, but I really just didn't have any idea how I would actually get a game like this made because that was when we were independent. So, um, and that was the other thing is that Deadfire underperforming when we were independent was a big deal because we spent all the crowdfunding money, then plus a lot of our reserves as a company to finish the game. And then it didn't make its money back. And that's bad. Like Mm. you're in the hole. Yeah. Uh, It was very disheartening and disappointing. So I think that's kind of reflected in a lot of act two, Andreas. Obviously I don't, well, I'll just say it. I don't have the same family life and losses that Andreas had, but that uh, sense of professional angst and frustration is definitely something that I've gone through. 
Yeah, as you're talking about it, it's just really striking. And this is obvious to you, but it's really striking how you come out and say it in the game. Like, I've got to get all these things in the specific mural that I'm making. And it's, I don't know how I'm supposed to do that without making it a bad mural. (laughs) Just kind of like, it's funny how directly an analog that is to a Kickstarter thing, basically. I mean, I was thinking of that, like, it is literally supposed to be that. (laughs) Like, that's what I was thinking of is, we have thousands of patrons and they all want stuff in and they're not bad people for wanting this in. We wouldn't be able to make this thing without them, but it's also a huge logistical and creative challenge to work all of that in. And sometimes you just get exhausted doing it. It's part of the job, but it's not a fun part of the job. Yeah. You mentioned that you don't have the same family life as a and Andreas and the same struggles. I'm curious like where that comes from. Was there a part of you that was in here? Um, and his sort of, I mean, for me, like I really resonated with the feeling of like, I need to get this done or I'm really invested or in the flow state, or I really want to dedicate myself to this on a Saturday, but I need to be with my family. I need, and I want to be with my family. Um, but then Andreas has this also th- also this second layer of fear of his family and not wanting to go back. Second act, Andreas in particular doesn't want to go back to what is a childless household at that point. I'm curious how much of that is is personal. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, like, I think people who have been in enough relationships have had conversations like, mm-hmm. like Andreas and Sabina have, which are really tense and... You enter into them defensively. Like you can kind of tell in the labyrinth conversation that Andreas, he's like, what? Like he's very defensive and nothing has even been said. And he's like, what? He, know, and he knows what's coming. Yeah. He's just like, allowing it's, for and it. it's yeah. like immediately there's this really defensive tone and you're like, this is not going to be good. And yeah, I mean, like, I think, like I said, I think a lot of people I have been in relationships where there's a lot of bad blood and you don't want to talk about things and you kind of don't want to be around each other. And then when you kind of know it's time to talk, like everyone gets off on the wrong foot. And so it immediately just goes like downhill. And it's it's so hard to it's so hard to feel like you can make meaningful progress. And so just the idea of talking is exhausting or the idea of being around the other person is exhausting. Um, And so you avoid it. Like you come up with reasons to not be around. I mean, not necessarily travel several countries away, (laughs) but, you know, just to try to not be present uh, because it's hard. It's difficult to confront those things and you don't know how you're going to get through it. But yeah, the issues with Andreas and Sabina and August are not something I can personally relate to, but hopefully it's represented. I was actually worried because like it has had a really strong effect on people who, especially who just have had young children. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was worried, especially for people who have suffered losses like that, that it would be too much, um, because it does kind of come out of nowhere, but, um, you thought a good deal about that while you were making it. I did. I was kind of like, actually for a long time, I, I had this idea for, cause I was like, well, I know Andreas in act two is going to be really disillusioned, but yeah. I don't want him to be kind of just a brat. And so I, I was like, it has to be deeper than just the professional upset. And so I had this idea of trouble with his wife and a lost child. And also because there's other issues of lost children that you encounter very early in act two, where you're like, Oh my God, like maternal mortality, infant mortality, child mortality. Like Bertholdt was not a baby. Bertholdt was like, I think seven years old. 
But I mean, that happened. Mm. Like many, many infants died. Many, many, many people, like almost in some places, almost half of all people died before 12. Yeah. It's almost yeah. unfathomable. And so I wanted to show that in the community. But then also I was I had this idea of but this is something Andreas has gone through, but it doesn't come up initially. And for a while I was like, man, is this just too much? Like, is this <laughs> like it's powerful, but is it just too much? And I talked with uh, one of my writing partners, Kate Dollarhide, and she's like, no, I think that would be like, it would explain a lot. Like you, uh, she's like, I think it explains a lot about how he is. And I think it would be very powerful. And especially if it comes out later. So at the, it happens like maybe not halfway, but a third of the way through act two. So you spend right. the first third kind of being like, why is Andreas so like, it's not just that he's like super depressed. He's like super unhappy, but he also didn't write back to people like everyone in town was writing to him and saying like, why didn't you write back to us? Like I told you, my dad died. I told you we had a child and you never wrote back to congratulate us. What's wrong with you? And so I think a lot of players and I've heard them, especially streamers are like, yeah, why is Andreas such an asshole? <laughs> um, and it's um, like, it kind of is. I mean, he still made those choices, but I think on St. John's Eve, when he goes to bed and you have that dream sequence, you're like, oh, wow, like he's really, really suffering. And then I think that also pushed me to include the melancholia uh, thought bubbles. So a lot of people actually mm -hmm. miss the thought bubbles. But in Act 2, in Act 1, you have the thought bubbles that are, that are Beatrice, Socrates, and St. Grobian kind of reflecting kind of id, ego, super ego, not respectively. But then in Act 2, they're all gone. They're only replaced with this melancholia figure. And so when Andreas is thinking to himself, she inserts herself. So he can't escape it. Like the, even if he picks options that go away from her, she eventually yeah. comes in and upsets him. And it's to reflect like he has this depression that is really crowding his thoughts and making it difficult for him to think about anything else. It's also interesting to think about that in terms of, um, his religion and spirituality, it is also, at least for me as a player, it's an opportunity to reconsider his perspective on those things. For me, I, sort of um, embodying Andreas, I'm like, I don't know, do I still like this God figure? You know, do I, <laughs> am I still on board am, or am I drastically reconsidering everything that everyone in this village even takes for granted? You know, I think, um, I think the way that I viewed Andreas is that obviously people, I want people to have a range of kind of make your own Andreas, but there are also limits to what Andreas is like. Andreas is yeah. Catholic. Andreas is not super duper religious. Um, he, like clearly mm -hmm. right away. I mean, father Thomas is like, maybe you should go to mass. Um, <laughs> but when he goes, <laughs> right. he goes to, he, <laughs> right. But you can, you can go to confession and he does his, our fathers and hail Marys, um, dutifully. Um, but also there are ways in which that he's, um, I mean, like anyone is a sinner, but he is an ordinary person like, like everyone else. So there are ways in which he strays and depending on how you choose to play him, maybe he strayed more in certain directions than others. But it was, I think there are other characters like Attilia is openly hostile towards the church. She even mm -hmm. says like, she doesn't believe the Christian God exists. <laughs> so she's yeah. like really yeah. extreme. And then you have characters like Vakslav who um, has very intellectual and very heretical somewhat Gnostic beliefs that he elaborates on the more you talk with him, but he's definitely a person who believes. Um, but yeah, Andreas is kind of somewhere in the middle. Like he is a Catholic. He does believe because of the themes of the game. I didn't really want to have Andreas be like questioning 
God or Catholicism, which I fully understand. There are people that go through Christ, like especially if they suffer severe losses um, that will cause them to question their faith. Um, but with Andreas, it was more like questioning his path in life, um, which is what he keeps returning to. And I think that if he if it had gone in a spiritual direction, it would have. Um, it's basically the opposite way. So Melancholia says. Your all of your thoughts are turned inward. Like all of your thoughts are turned toward your mistakes and your missteps and ways you could have gone and your helplessness and inability to do anything about it. Um, so he's really absorbed with his own choices and path through life as opposed to external factors or even metaphysical mm. factors that have affected things. Yeah, so much of that I think I read into because I think of um, that's maybe the degree to which I don't take for granted my own spirituality is like I my experience was when I started having real tragedy in my life was when I started for me it was less questioning it just cemented things mm -hmm. um, a little bit which is interesting because you don't hear that story very often I don't think but it did call it into question in the sense of like all right we're really asking this question now sure we're really asking do I believe this stuff and so I read some of that into Andreas but I think you're right like he feels like he swept up by the culture and the system a little bit. And he just, he is just more concerned about his individual things. There's a, uh, I wish I could remember it. Cause I, I like it. It's a line that I wrote and I actually liked it a lot. <laughs> there's something where, um, there's a certain line of questioning where you can talk to Illuminata about father Matthias and you can say something about like, is there something that father Matthias could have read in Historia Tassii that would have caused, could have caused him a crisis of faith and she says, well, I don't know, like, I don't know him and I can't know what was in his heart. But she says something about, it's something about virtue. And she, he says something like, would it really test his virtue? And she said like, well, if they're not tested, they're not virtues. <laughs> like yeah. we find virtue yes. in the testing of them. Otherwise they're just like opinions or beliefs. Um, but when they're yes. actually tested, that is the point where you say, oh, now this means something. This is actually a test this is in the depth of this. And yeah, sometimes it breaks people. But like you said, there are lots of people that come through it and say, no, this has actually strengthened and deepened my faith and my belief in how I view the world. And maybe it's also changed it in the course. But yeah, for many people, it's a, I took these things for granted. Now I was forced to really grapple with them. And now I really mm -hmm. deeply believe in them in a way that I couldn't have appreciated before. Um, but it took the crisis to get me here. I'm mapping a lot onto this now, this conversation. What you just said feels like it could apply to your sort of artistic beliefs, maybe, in the sense that you talk about this period where you really were shaken, you really were tested, in a kind of like, comparably, a low-stakes way. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm sure like you felt agony over a lot of the things that you've experienced creatively, and then you get into a situation where... Again, like I mentioned, I think some people would be terrified to take on this particular project and maybe wouldn't have even gone for it, frankly. I'm curious, like, is that maybe like the kind of feeling you have is like your virtues were tested early on in terms of sort of artistic integrity, creative purity, these questions, and then you got to sort of finally live them out in sort of a more pure and tested way in this project? I think the thing is like, you know, we can't kind of know this range of emotions until we actually go through them. Mm -hmm. You know, we might be able to sort of intellectually understand what it's like to do something and fail or fail in part or fail in ways that to other people don't even seem like failures. And 
the thing is like, we're all working in the same capitalist system. So it's the thing that changed was the circumstances under which I made the game. It wasn't that, I mean, I Mm. did change. That's true. Um, and having come through those difficult projects that did not turn out the way that I wanted to did change my perspective and, they did sort of, again, they did sort of galvanize my sense that at least at that point, when I started on Pentiment, I needed to make something that felt much more driven by me, much more driven by the people that I worked with and not driven by people above me and not driven by backers and not driven by publishers. And yeah, I made a lot of games that I had a lot of fun making, to be honest, and hopefully a lot of people had fun playing them, but they were made, they were handed down to me, right? Like make yeah. a D&D game, make another D&D game, make a Fallout game. And yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say I had a bad time making Fallout New Vegas and <laughs> it was received very well and that's great. And that was actually a dream of mine was to make that. But it's not my, it wasn't even my choice, really. It's not like I can just wake up and decide I'm going to make a Fallout game or (laughs) this is my team or like, I just can't will that into existence. This is the only project where I felt like the circumstances were right for me to sort of lay claim and say, hey, look, we got a we got some big projects going on. We were just acquired. I just want to do something little. I've been making games for 20 some years now. I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to waste uh-huh. a bunch of money. And even if you, even if I did, it's not that much money. So just trust me. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, I don't know if that really answered your question, but. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot in that. There's a lot like embedded in that. I've been making games for 20 years now thing. And yeah. from what I'm feeling is it feels like the, there are direct ways that sort of having hard creative experiences led to you being able to really lean in to this creative opportunity. Because if it were me, just being honest, I would have compromised. Mm-hmm. Without anyone telling me to, I would have said, no one is going to, like I heard you on Eggplant talking about, yeah, everyone wants to click through the text, right? Like everyone wants to skip the text, or not skip it, just make it go faster. Mm-hmm. And you said, if people want to do that, they're probably not going to like this game. And so like, we'll See just you. do it anyway. And <laughs> as a signal, yeah. this is not for you. That helped me enjoy the game more, actually just knowing that, that oh okay that's an intentional choice and that's what this game is and it got me into the mindset but i never would have made that choice right like that is too scary of a choice and feels like shooting myself in the foot when in in react reality it like makes the game actually better well and there are some people that really hate it and they vocally say <laughs> right. that they can't stand it and it's like okay yeah what i will say and again so much credit does need to go to indie studios that have shown the way in terms of making bold choices and saying like, if you're not into this art style, if you're not into games that don't have VO, don't play it. If you're not Mm -hmm. into games where you just walk around and talk to people, there are literally thousands of other games where you can shoot things. Like you can play those not pejorative. Like you just go ahead (laughs) Um, And so I feel like if you're making something small where you know that it's niche and you know it's a passion project, it's not mainstream. Like, it is not a mainstream game. And you have to have faith that if some people like it, if you're into it and you find some other people that are into it, then you probably have an audience. And yeah, and some people are going to bounce and you just have to go like, okie doke. But again, I think this is also where the confidence comes from, where I know about the size of the audience, like the number of people that have to buy this or play it on Game Pass to make it profitable is about this. 
And that's mm-hmm. so much smaller than the number of people that need to play a game like Fallout New Vegas for it to be profitable or whatever. Yeah. So knowing that you can just say like, okay, as long as it's not aggressively hostile to players, you can just make creative choices that are take it or leave it. And that's okay. You, there's a limited number you can do with that. Um, and then yeah. there are other things where it's less about take it or like we did actually in a patch, we put in the um, instant dialogue and that's actually for people that have cognitive, like they have reading problems when the text fills in. So like, this is the distinction for me. If you don't like it because you just don't like it, I do not yeah. care at all. <laughs> If you don't like it because it's making it actually hard for you to play the game, like difficulty, then I actually care about it because I do want you to access that stuff. And if we can provide you an option, even if it's not the default, like, you know, we have the uh, easy read text mode. I do think that you lose a lot by not seeing all of the fonts that we made. But if you can't read the game, then you can't play it. So that's a compromise that I'm totally willing to make for the sake of, I would rather if people play the game than not, if it's a legibility issue, if it's really just like, I can't read Gothic script, it's just too crazy. So yeah, that's kind of how I make the distinction. But, you know, I always knew that it was going to be niche. I always knew there was going to be a huge section of the gaming populace that would just say like, never, ever going to look at it. But the thing is, again, like how many of those people would have looked at it if I let you skip dialogue? right? Mm-hmm. Like it's the same audience, the people who are just like, I don't want to do a lot of reading. I don't want to wait for lines. I want to skip forward. It's like, well, then you don't actually want to read the dialogue and the game is dialogue. Yeah. How long did you spend um, making this game? It was nine months in pre-production and then like two years and three months in production. So like three years total. Okay. Yeah. So that's a significant amount of time to me. I want to take us to the day before the game launched. How are you mm-hmm. feeling? Pretty good. I guess the thing is, like, in my mind, based on feedback that we'd re- we had received internally, I knew that mm-hmm. there was a group of people who were going to be ecstatic about it. They're going to love it. <laughs> They're going to love the mm-hmm. art. They're going to love the story. They're going to love the dialogue. They're going to be super fans. And I was like, great. And then... I knew there were going to be some people who were just like, nope, I don't like it fundamentally, or I don't like the execution of it. Like, you're always going to have people that don't like the execution. And so in my mind, I thought that review-wise, it was probably going to be a 30-70 split. 30% are like, I love this. This is made for me. Fantastic. And then 70% were going to be like, either this sucks or I think it's executed badly. It wasn't that. And I was, I was like, okay with that. I was like, well, I mean, I don't like seeing people say they hate what I made, but also I don't think it matters because as long as it found the super fans. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the day before I felt pretty comfortable. Like I was just kind of like, yeah, I think this is a, a kind of, you love it or you just don't like it at all. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like that would have been surprised. That was the whole game where you know, the yeah, whole production yeah. people were like, this is crazy. I don't know if anyone's going to like it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> some people are going to like it. I don't know how many, yeah. but some people are going to like it. And then the week after two weeks later, um, you've got it out in the wild. I feel like from my perspective, the reviews were much better than you anticipated from what you yeah. just said. Mm-hmm. It feels like you know, whatever meta score, something in the 80 or 90s. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. It was green. Mid, mid to and high then, 80s. Uh, 
Yeah. And then like the impressions are generally positive. I still, you're going to hate this. Maybe you won't care. I'm saying this because I feel like you won't care based on our conversation. But like the thing that sticks out of my mind is the besties. I don't know if you listen to that podcast, but Justin McElroy calls it books level boring. (laughs) (laughs) And that becomes a running joke on the show. And of course, after a while, they grows on them, which was fun to listen to. Um, But it's probably the best articulation that show and its approach to the game is probably the best articulation of kind of exactly what you anticipate, (laughs) which is some people are going to go, this is not for me or not for me in this stage of my life, which certainly in a certain stage of my life, it would not be for me. Right. But um, yeah. How are you feeling like two weeks later? Good. Is there anything that surprises you of all in all of this? I think the number of people that really like had very moved, like they were very moved by it. Um, Mm. Just seeing Mm -hmm. a lot of people just like really emotionally overwhelmed by the whole experience. The thing is I've made games long enough and especially if millions of people wind up playing them eventually, um, you're going to get some people that really respond positively. But seeing so many people finish it and say like, I haven't had an emotional reaction to a game in years. Like this is the first one and it was so powerful. People saying this is my favorite game of the year or at the very least, like putting it on their top 10 of the end of the game years or end yeah. of the year, like game of the year sort of lists. Um, yeah. yeah. Like it was surprising to me to see that many people just be like, Oh my God, I love it so much. Wasn't expecting that. Like I, I thought people would really like it. And especially on an intellectual level, but seeing so many people really feel it on an emotional level was um, I wasn't really expecting that. What were the feelings people were, were having playing this game? I think people, you know, they said that they really felt strong connections to the characters, um, that they really felt like a community, that they really sympathized with them. They really hated the characters that were very hateable. You know, they were very, (laughs) very upset at the end of like at the end of act one, feeling extremely no matter who they essentially turned in or got killed, feeling really conflicted about their role in that. And like so many people saying like, I feel like I messed up. Like I, there has to be a better way to do it. And in in reality, it's like, no, it's just, this is 16th century justice with no forensic science. Like you're just, it's not satisfying. (laughs) It's frustrating and it's awful. And like seeing the executioner actually perform the execution is not cool. And so people Uh are like, Oh God. And then, Seeing Andreas's arc in Act Two, I think a lot of people really responded very strongly to the entirety of Act Two, him struggling and his family life and the loss that the community has faced. Yeah. And then the end of Act Two, people were I've seen a lot of streamers play through the end of Act Two and they're really dismayed and shocked. And then yeah, seeing it all come together. I did really we put a lot of time and effort and frankly money into the very end of the game and the transition from the mill into the rot house showing the mural because I did want people to really, I wanted everyone to get to the end of the game and be like, where's the mural? Like I've never seen a single piece of art for the stupid mural. Uh It's the whole thing I did this act for and she's leaving. Like what is going on, please. And I, I wanted that to be a very, a very emotional, like way to tie everything together and show it kind of, moving past the end of the game into some unspecified point in the future, which is why you also Mm -hmm. see the family tree created by Andreas Mueller, Paul's son, um, and all the things that happened after the end of the game. And that's also why the music there is, is very different. That's the only piece of music that was not done by alchemy. It was done by lingua ignata. 
And I asked her to do something that felt more like maybe 19th century. What are, you know, she's an incredible musician, but I said, don't feel bound by 16th century music, make it feel more modern, but also kind of like, when is this? Uh, because the idea is you're looking at the rat house, but when, like, is this the 17th century? Is it the 19th century? Is it now? Who knows? This stuff has persisted and you know that it exists and it's time has passed. It's not clear how much, <laughs> but these are the choices that you made and you're seeing it. It like seeing it in 3d, it like makes it more real. And then seeing like the conclusion of the book is like, yeah, this is the whole story that you were reading through and playing through, which was authored by Amelie in, and here it is in this room, which is kind of almost like a museum or this is the physical record of all the stuff that went on. Yeah. So it was kind of to bring that all together. And so a lot of people were just like really overwhelmed by the ending, especially the Christmas Eve through the credits. I was so like expecting that mural to let me down. I was so happy with like the way that that ended. Um, and the fact that we got to see all of that, I don't know. It was just like, it exceeded my expectations by a long shot for Thank sure. You. So the end of the episode, every episode, we always uh, do a little thing uh, where we spin the feelings wheel. The feelings wheel is a bunch of like 82 or something different emotions that are just uh, the, they are all of the emotions that you can have. I mean, they're not really, but there are a lot of emotions. So we spin it, we land on one, and then I'm going to ask you to name a game that um, oh, geez. has made you feel this way. What is a game that has made you feel joyful? Joyful. Joyful. I would say probably just through goofing around, this will sound really dark, but um, the Hitman series. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I've loved yeah. the Hitman series for a long time and the new trilogy, Hitman 2 and 3, um, that came out mm-hmm. in 2016 and then 2020, I think was the last one. They obviously it's serious subject matter and you're murdering people, but. The AI and the way like it there's it's you can play with so much I, and it's so yeah. fun to go into those levels and like just goof around with the AI and create very ridiculous scenarios. And as as dark as it is, I always love going into those levels and trying out some new wacky way of assassinating or like chain reaction, blowing up a bunch of things with like placed canisters of gas and explosives and things that like go, it's like a, it's like a domino trail through the forest or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's messed up, but like I would just laugh and laugh because you just create (laughs) these crazy scenarios and just see them play out. And I love games where you really are encouraged to use tools to, make your own gameplay and make your own challenges. And that's ultimately why I keep going back to the Hitman series is because it really just gives you freedom to do things in a ton of different ways. And it's endlessly entertaining to me. Yeah. It there, it seems like there is a sense in which like laughter is tied to joy, you know, comedy, humor are inherently tied to joy. I also wonder if there's something inherently joyful or just funny about removing the stakes from violence, just removing all real stakes. This oh, doesn't absolutely. matter. Um, That's kind of opposite it's fu- of what Pentiment does. Yeah, it's weird too because um, I've done streams where I play Hitman, and because I will just go back into the level and load it and reset it all the time and just do these goofy things. But people come into the stream and yep. they're like, "Why are you doing this? Like, why are you doing all this collateral damage to civilians and like all this stuff?" And I'm like, "They're not." 
guys, I'm like, I've played this level like 50 times. It's AI. I understand what you're saying, but like, it's, this is goofing around. I'm not a murderer. <laughs> this is just <laughs> being silly. Yeah. I'm just being silly. And if it, I said like, if you don't like it, I understand that, but this is, and I'll usually broadcast like, this is the casual murder episode where I'm just goofing around in levels. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think, yeah, when you remove that and it becomes almost more like slapstick, then yeah, yeah. it's just, it's, you're goofing around with AI and there are a lot of stealth games, like the old uh, Splinter Cell games. I had a ton of fun just messing with AI. And um, there's a, a YouTube streamer called Stealth Gamer BR who's uh, Brazilian. And he kind of specializes in funny and creative kills in stealth games, uh, like mm -hmm. Dishonored and the Far Cry games. And they're like laugh out loud funny because he just gets the AI. He'll like blow up a Jeep and it'll fly through the air and he'll trigger an AI to run and the Jeep will land on the guy as he's running. And it's hard to not just laugh at that, even though, yeah, he's killing these guys, but it's slapstick. It's slapstick. So yeah, it's macabre, but I generally, I genuinely get a lot of joy out of those games. That's good. I wanted to ask before you left with all of the stuff we just talked about in mind, all of the ways sort of the response to Pentiment and stuff, how will that change the way you approach creative work moving forward? I think that there was um, there was something I heard in a documentary by, uh, well, not by Stephen Sondheim, but about Stephen Sondheim. I was really into musical theater when I was younger, and Stephen Sondheim was my favorite composer. And there's a documentary called Six by Sondheim, and he talked at one point about doing a show that it was done basically because it was convenient, and they thought it would be easy, and they thought it would be a quick buck. And he said, those are all reasons to not do make a musical. <laughs> and he said, he said mm -hmm. it did not, it was very unsatisfying to make that. And then at the end, he said, he realized after that, the only reason to do anything is out of love. And that's actually Klaus says that to Magdalena toward the end of Pentiment. He basically says like, I'm going to be gone someday. Like it might be today or tomorrow or a week from now, but you're going to have to do things for your own on your own and you're going to have to do things for other people, but you're going to have to like do it out of love because that's the only reason to do anything in the world. And working on this, I do feel again at this point in my career, like again, it's part of a business. We have to face the reality of, of the world that we're in. But if I don't actually love the thing I'm working on, I don't think at 47 years of age that I can do that anymore. So <laughs> whatever mm -hmm. comes next and next after that, it has to be something that I really truly am passionate about. And I don't believe we're going into it with a bunch of compromises and expectations from external forces. I came into my conversation with Josh Sawyer, hoping he could give me the secret to pure creative bravery. But after talking to him, here's the thing I just can't escape. Josh Sawyer has been making games for a long time. He's had his share of successes and failures, and that double-edged sword of experience has carved him into someone who is apparently largely fearless when it comes to these things. Experience is not a transferable skill. I can't snap my fingers and make myself even more of a seasoned creative veteran. But the way I approach gaining experience can be a transferable skill. I've been making podcasts for 15 years and doing creative work for a lot longer than that, and I've noticed something about myself. I tend to actively avoid failure. If I don't feel like something's going to work, 
I avoid it like the plague. I move on to a sure thing or at least something that I know will win me the approval of those I care about. Pentiment, for me, represents a bit of a beacon of hope. It's an out-of-left-field gamble that was the result of a singular vision, and it paid off. And more importantly, it easily could have failed. But a financial failure is not necessarily a holistic failure, and Josh Sawyer's acceptance that financial failure wasn't quite the worst thing in the world, that's the takeaway here, for me at least. Because as creators, every time we hedge... Every time we keep our passions and our idiosyncrasies close to the chest, we create something slightly less truthful than it needs to be. But when we lean into those things, like Josh did with Pentiment, we create the opportunity, the potential, for a creative work that deeply connects with an audience, however small it may be. much for listening to season three of video game feelings we're just getting started so if this show is connecting with you and you think it might connect with someone else let them know rating and reviewing the show on itunes and all those other places always helps of course but you can also just uh tell a friend tell someone who might be interested we also have a presence on twitter for as long as that exists it's at vidgamefeelings. it's at vidgamefeelings. And we are also at Instagram under the name at Video Game Feelings. Video Game Feelings is an Area Code Audio production. For more information about Area Code Audio, check out areacodeaudio.com. It is created, written, and hosted by me, Richard Clark, produced by Nettie Smith. Theme music by Bruce Holtman, art by Brenna Kammerer, and the Useful Group Design Team. This is an Area Code podcast.